Romans chapter 9. So um, when I, when I um, flew out to pick up the church van, um, there was an interesting kind of experience uh, in um, flying, flying from, you know, it was from Philly to Indianapolis. It was very clear. There wasn't very much cloud coverage. And I had a window seat, and I could see, you know, pretty clearly all the way through, you know. And so you kind of, like, come across uh, Pennsylvania, and there's some terrain there. But once you cross really over past Pennsylvania, it's just flat. The whole country just kind of levels right out. And you can see that from however many feet up we are. You know, you can tell it's just flat, you know. And you see these farmlands, just tens of thousands of acres of farmland uh, blocked out in what I, what I could kind of guess to be about three-mile um, blocks of roads that go through. But then what you see is you see the highway. You know, you, I don't know if it's 71 or, you know, 80 or whatever it is that, that's going across, which one you're looking at. But you just see the highway. And the highway is kind of like this selfish, meandering river, you know, that just kind of like, there's no order to it. It just cuts through everything, you know. So there's these, all the fields and lands and properties, and there's no order to it. I mean, you know, usually if you're going to build a highway and it has to curve, it's because there's something it has to go around. But not in the plains, but yet they're just like, let's turn here, you know. And, and so, so <laughs> it just curves right through, and it just, it just goes on. And who knows how they figure all that out. But this, the highway is so different, you know, that, that goes through. And I just made a mental note is I'm going to be on that highway, and I'm curious what it looks like from there, you know, because I'm seeing it from here. Um, so I, I land, and it was interesting because I landed, and 20 minutes after the plane hit the ground, I was in the vehicle driving back. You know, so I was literally on those highways in the same hour that I was looking at them from however many feet. And it's an amazingly different experience because you have no idea when you're on the highway what you're actually driving through according to what you saw while you were on the plane. You know, and a highway's a highway. You know, you got two or three lanes, you got a ton of cars, you got information signs, you know, and everybody builds these little berms because they don't want anybody looking onto their land from the highway or they don't want to hear the noise. So you, you have no idea. You're, this is just a highway, you know. So as we come to Romans chapter 9, what happens here is that the Apostle Paul breaks context. He, he's been very systematic, like supremely systematic from chapter one all the way to the end of chapter eight. It has been a step. Um, there's symmetry. There's, you know, climbing. There's climax. There's shape. It's, it's perfect. But now he hits chapter nine, and it's like he goes in a total different direction. There's like this whole subsection, and he's going to pick up context again when we get to chapter 12. So nine, 10, and 11 is like this parenthetical part of the book of Romans that breaks away somewhat. It, there's a reason for it. It makes sense, but it's kind of different. And he's going to get into some very technical things, things that are, uh, you know, thought-provoking, things that are debate-worthy, things that have no resolution in the intellect. You know, he's going to get into all of these things, and it's kind of like driving on the highway. Looking When you go through, we're looking at the verses, and we're just trudging through these concepts. And if you forget the aerial perspective, if you forget what the landscape looks like, you can almost forget why we're talking about this. How do we get onto election? How do we get onto, you know, talking so much about Israel and, uh, you know, God's plan and purpose for them and God's choice and Pharaoh's hardened heart? And how did we get here? You know, you kind of feel like that when you're driving through, you know. So 
what it what it helps to do as we begin these three chapters, and we're not going to belabor them, we won't be in them for a terribly long period of time, is to kind of look at them, first of all, from the airplane. What is it that the Apostle Paul is seeking to communicate through this parenthetical section where he's breaking away from his context to talk about uh, Israel? And so he, he's going to talk in these um, these chapters about the nation or about Israel as both a national and a spiritual entity. Now, up till now, it's all been the church. It's all been the Gentiles. He's writing to Romans. These are Gentile people. But now he's going to talk about Israel in a national and spiritual context. And we wonder why. Why is he doing this? And there's three reasons. And and so if we look at those three reasons, it'll help us to see the airplane perspective and understand why we're looking at these things so that it won't get lost uh, in the details. But the first reason why he does this is because when we're talking about Gentile salvation, which is the theme of Romans, the big elephant in the room is what about the Jews? I mean, the history of God, the entire history of God, has been all about Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses and the law, the promised land, and then the kingdom and all. This has been Israel from the beginning, and now all of a sudden, it's like it's all about the Gentiles and whatever happened to the Jews. And that's a question that needs to be answered, and that's part of the reason. Uh, The second reason why Paul does this is it kind of dovetails with the first one, is why is it that the church has come to the forefront, the foreground, and Israel has gone to the background? Why is that? And he's going to discuss and, and explain that. And then third of all, what is God's future plan for the nation of Israel? And that's also an important thing to understand, uh, you know, for us as Gentiles in the church age to realize that God is not done yet with the Jewish nation. Um, there, there is a, um, a, a theology, a belief system that's called replacement theology. And what that basically says is that because the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, God is finished with the Jews, and now he's dealing with the Gentiles. And so the Jews are are done, God's finished with them, and the church is the new Israel. We are the new whatever, whatever. That's not a true belief. God said his covenant with Abraham was an everlasting covenant to him and his descendants. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, if the sun and the moon stop shining and 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 moving the moon you know as it moves he says if those two things stop then israel will stop being a nation and an entity before me saith the lord those things are still in existence aren't they i mean i looked out the this the window just a moment ago and the sun is shining today <laughs> and what that means is that god's not done with israel he hasn't replaced israel but we need to deal with them what happened where are they now what is God doing? And so Paul uh, deals with the big elephant in the room in these chapters, and he's going to bring us through. Uh, and, and in the process, there's some crazy things to think about. And so chapter 9, verse 1, uh, Paul, breaking away from context, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I'm dead serious about what I'm about to say. This is a passionate thing Uh, That's true in my heart, Paul begins. He says that I have great heaviness 
and continual sorrow in my heart. There's an emotional burden. There's something that weighs on me continually and I can't shake it. It's a continual heaviness in in me, a continual sorrow. And here's what it is, verse 3. He says, For I could wish that myself were accursed or cut off from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, Paul, as he peels back the veil of his emotions, he says, I have such a burden and such a love and such a desire to see Israel saved, to see them completed, to see them born again, that if I could, and he can't, but he says, if I could, I would trade my own salvation to see them redeemed. Now that's pretty remarkable. And just to stop and think about that right there. I mean, he he testifies before God the Holy Spirit in verse 1, saying that this is the truth. So he's not saying something just for effect, you know, or to get our attention. He means it. And I, and I just wonder, as I think about this, you know, how many of us would trade our salvation for somebody else? That's, a, that's an amazing level of love. And so Paul lets us know the emotion and the burden that he has for the nation of Israel. And that's a, that's a God-given burden. Because that's the way that God loved and loves still the nation of Israel. He hasn't cast them off. He's not done with them. He's not through with them. It's an interesting thing to uh, consider that Paul had such a love for the Jews. And yet God didn't call him to reach the Jews. That's kind of frustrating. It frustrated Paul throughout his entire ministry. He wanted to be called to the Jews. He loved his people. And he felt particularly equipped to reach them. And he was. I mean, he knew the Old Testament like nobody else. And yet God had to tell him continually, Paul, this is not my calling on your life. You are called to reach Gentiles. I've called Peter to be the apostle to the Jews. It's not you. It's not your ministry. And Paul continually had to struggle with that and then come to terms with the fact that it wasn't ordained from God for him to reach those whom he loved the most. And maybe that's a word for some of us. You know, sometimes um, the people that we love the most, our family, our spouse, our kids, or our extended family, our parents, whatever, sometimes those are the ones that we want to reach and we feel like we're the most equipped to do it because we know them, they know us. We have a testimony. They know what we were before and what we are after. And we feel like if anyone has a shot at reaching these particular people, it's going to be me. But I find that often the case is that God looks at us and he says, it's not my ministry for you to reach that person. As much as you think logically that that's my will and how it's going to work, it's not going to work that way. I think that sometimes when we get emotionally attached to something, we have a greater potential to mess it up. Have you guys noticed that in your life? I I know I have. And Paul is saying right here out of his own mouth that I'm emotionally attached to their well-being. And that sometimes causes us to make decisions foolishly. We're led by our emotions rather than by the Spirit of God or by logic. And so the solution in those instances is that we're to leave it to God to take care of what he's going to do in the lives of those people that he hasn't called us to reach. We are not called to minister to our emotion or even the need that's at hand. We are called to minister to our calling. What has God called us to? 
That's where we're to focus our energy. We might feel strongly about wanting to do something else, but that might not be God's will for us, right? And we might want to do something else, or there might be a need for something else. There's such a great need. This has to be done. But if it's not our calling, it's a waste of time. It's not going to work. And Paul had to learn that. But he tells us here, this is my burden. I want them to know Christ so bad, I would trade my own salvation to see it through, to make it happen. So now he describes who they are in verses 4 and 5. He's very clear about who his kinsmen are, according to the flesh. He says, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and all that, all them, David, and of whom concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So he essentially gives nine descriptive characteristics of national Israel here in this two-verse description. He says they're Israelites, meaning they're supposed to be governed by God. Israel means governed by God. They've been given the adoption, meaning they were called the children of God. They had the glory of God, the covenants of God, the law and the circumcision and the various covenants that God had given. They had the promises. The Old Testament scriptures were given to them and entrusted to them. They were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had an amazing heritage. And most of all, he says that it was through them that the Savior, Jesus, came into the world. And so they had so many blessings, so many advantages, so many privileges that God had entrusted to them. And yet, in all of that, they're still unsaved. They had all of those spiritual religious advantages. They had all that truth, and yet they're still not going to heaven if they don't, you know, come to God's true salvation. And so he says, I have a burden for them because they're not saved. Now, he begins to explain, verse 6. He says, not as though the word of God had taken no effect. Not as though the word, in other words, it was God's intent and purpose for Israel to know him, right? Wasn't that what God wanted all along? God said to Abram, I've got a plan for you and your descendants. It's going to be everlasting. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. That was God's will. That's why he made them. That's why he gave them the covenants and the promises and the glory and the heritage and the Messiah. Because he wanted them to know him. And yet, as it stands, when Paul's writing, they don't know him. They're completely estranged from him. So it seems like God failed. God, your purpose was to reach them, but they're not reached. You failed in your intent. And Paul says, it's not as though God failed. That's not the case. Well, then what is the case? Now, just so we understand where Paul's going with this, skip to verse 30, because the answer is given to us in verse 30. And so that we don't get lost, let's get in the airplane for a minute. And look at, look at it from above. What happened? What's going on? Why aren't the Jews saved even though they had all those advantages? Look what he says. He says, what shall we say then? 
that the Gentiles, that's you and me, that's the audience, the Romans to whom Paul's writing, which followed not after righteousness, meaning that they didn't have all the advantages of the Jews, the law and such, have attained to righteousness, meaning we are saved, even the righteousness which is of what? Faith. Right. Faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. In other words, even from the very beginning, God's salvation was never something that could be earned. Now, we've learned that in the first eight chapters of Romans, right? That it's all by grace through faith that we are saved. But the Jews thought they could earn it because of their heritage and their behavior, keeping the law. And thus they stumbled at the stumbling stone because you can't be righteous by being good enough. Do we understand that? There's no one that can be righteous by being good enough. And so the Jews, thinking that because they were Jews, seed of Abraham, God's children, having the law, they thought they were a shoe-in. But God says, no, you cannot earn your salvation. It's by faith. It's believing in something that's been done for you, not something that you can do for yourself. And thus the Gentiles, realizing we got no heritage, We've got no history with God. We've got no ancestors or covenants or anything. We're lost sinners, and we've been lost sinners for generations and generations and generations. Is there any way for us to be saved? And God says, yes, believe on my son, Jesus, who died in your place. And we say, okay. And we obtain righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. And the Jews are outside going like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How is God's favor on you and not on us, you know? And Paul says, because they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Now, the interim verses that we skipped over explain how that happened. How is it that the Jews didn't obtain God's initial intent and the Gentiles did? How is it that the church is now in the front and Israel is now in the back? So go back to verse 6. And he explains that there are uh, two, two elements that made this happen. He says, not as though the word of God had taken no effect. He says, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now again, Israel means governed by God. Do you remember when Jacob's name was changed? His name was Jacob. and God came to him and God wrestled with him. And he said, your name will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be called Israel. You're no longer going to be a heel catcher. A conniver, you know, crafty, but your name is now going to be governed by God. And that became the name of the nation because it was to be a people that were governed by God. And so what Paul is basically saying here to this audience is he's saying that not everyone who is a citizen of Israel, the nation, is governed by God. Not everyone who is of Israel is Israel. Not everyone has the name necessarily walks the walk. 
Neither, verse 7, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now, remember, Abraham was the father of many nations, right? And Israel is only one nation. And so he's saying that, listen, just because someone can claim that they're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that they're a part of the children of Abraham. Because the children of Abraham are only those who come through the line of Isaac. Remember in Genesis chapter 22, and you don't, if you say, no, I don't remember that actually, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, you can look it up later, <laughs> you know, but you'll remember it after I say it. When God came to Abraham and, and, and asked him to offer up his son, Isaac, he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, Isaac was not technically Abraham's only son. Ishmael had already been born 13 years, actually more than that at this time. Ishmael was already alive for a long time, but God didn't even recognize Ishmael because he was not the child of promise. He was the child of the flesh, Abraham's plan. So take your only son. So just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't necessarily make you a child of the promise. He says, because in Isaac shall your seed be called. Verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, that means literally descendants of Abraham, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So not all, but those that come through Isaac by faith. Isaac was the byproduct of faith. For this is the word of promise, that at this time will I come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when one Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Now watch this. He says, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. And it was said unto her that the elder will serve the younger, as it is written, that Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So he says, Sarah and Isaac would produce the children because it was of promise, right? Not Ishmael and Hagar. But then he goes furthermore, he takes it one step further, and he says that Rebekah and Isaac, that was the son of Abraham and his wife, they had twins, remember? Jacob and Esau. Now this is where it gets, this gets complicated. Because when you're talking about Ishmael and Isaac, you have the same father, but you have different mothers. Technically, there's different blood there. But when you talk about Jacob and Esau, you take that, that's out of the equation now. Because now you have the same mother and the same father. In fact, it's the same pregnancy. It's the same exact moment, right? So you can't, there's no more distinction in anything, but yet one of those two was chosen and the other one was rejected. And the amazing thing is that before any one of those two boys ever lived a day of their life, that choice had already been made. 
God chose Jacob to become Israel and not Esau before they were even born. Before they had a chance to obey or disobey. Before they had a chance to be good or not good or let their character develop and unfold and be tested and proven. God chose them beforehand that it was going to be through Jacob before they did anything wrong. And Paul says that the reason for that, listen, he says it right here, is that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not by works, but of him that calls. So in other words, the two things that make someone the seed of Abraham or God's children, God's people, which is what we are, Gentiles, why we're in the front and Israel's in the back, is number one, promise, and number two, election, or purpose, the purpose of election. Promise is that we have believed the promise by faith, just like Isaac was the byproduct of promise and faith, and election, meaning that we've been chosen by God apart from our works, but according to his calling and his election. Now, this is where the mind begins to short circuit. God chose before we were born those that would be saved and become his children. Before any good or evil was done, before any decisions were made, God already chose. And this is where we start to go, I don't get it. you know. And it starts to get extremely uh, complicated when we try to understand how all these things work uh, in all. But notice what he he says uh, in this. And and I want to hit verse 13 because people ask about it, um, where he says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He said, wait a minute, how could a God of love hate someone? And and people raise that question, you know, uh, what's the context? I mean, he's quoting scripture. That's Malachi uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You know, God comes right out and he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. You know, God hated Esau? Like, what's what's the deal with that? Listen, you have to understand, when God uses this in the context of it, it's a context of comparison. Remember when Jesus said, he said, if any man will be my disciple... Right? This is Jesus, and we know Jesus, right? He said he must hate mother and father, brother and sister, right? You know, uh, lands. If he doesn't hate those things, then he cannot be my disciple. And we go, whoa, whoa, Jesus, wait. You said love your enemies, and now you're telling me to hate my parents? Like, that's a contradiction. No, no, no. It's not a contradiction. He's not telling us to hate our parents, right? He's telling us that our love for him ought to be so much that in comparison to that, all other loves look like hate. In other words, the the difference in the spectrum between our love for anything else and our love for God ought to be a love-hate difference. Does that make sense? So God didn't hate Esau in the sense that we, we think of hatred, like jihad. You know, like, like that's not the kind of hatred that God had. He loved Esau, but his love for Jacob was so far beyond Esau that it looked like hate in that comparison. So now Paul begins to explain and defend this concept of election. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? For God to choose one... And not choose another, to choose Jacob and not choose Esau, to select 
in a group of people or within a nation, those that will be saved and those that will not, does that make God unrighteous? And that's a, that's a, that's a question, right? It's something that we have to wrestle with, you know. Why did he choose us? Why did God choose me? When I think about, you know, uh, where I came from, the town that I grew up in, you know, and there were Christians in that town. But by and large, if you take those that, that knew the Lord and came to know the Lord uh, out of my little town, the suburb of Rochester growing up, those that knew the Lord and those that didn't, those that did, very small margin of those people. Why? Why, did he, why do I get to be one of those people? That's, that's a remarkable thing. I'm, I'm, I'm glad about it. You know, but uh, but is there unrighteousness with God? And Paul says, God forbid. Now, why not? Why is it okay for God to choose some and not to choose others? And and he gives the answer here in uh, three things. Basically, in verse fifteen, he tells us first of all that God proclaimed that He was sovereign to choose. He said that from the very beginning. Notice in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So he said from the very beginning, God stated that this was the way that he was going to operate. Now, amazingly, when did God say that to Moses? He said it when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory and tell me your name. And God said, all right, I'm going to. I'm going to do that. I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to cause my glory to pass by before you. And he did it. He proclaimed his name and he said, the Lord, the Lord God. And he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then he said his name was, was uh, um, the Lord, gracious, slow to anger, rich in mercy. Like that's his name. But yet he says, I will have mercy on whom I, he said it from the beginning. This was my ways. So verse 16 it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. In other words, him that wills is him that chooses, right? To will something is to choose to do something. So it's not the choice that we make. Nor of him that runs, that's the person that works towards something, runs after something, chases after something. That has nothing to do with it, but it's of God that shows mercy. So God proclaimed his sovereign election. Then in verse uh, uh, 17 and 18, God demonstrates his sovereignty. So not only did he proclaim it, but now he demonstrates it. He says, for the scripture says unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardens. And so he says right here that God even said, for this, this purpose I have raised up the Pharaoh, that I might show my power and that my name might be declared uh, in, in all the earth. And so um, Pharaoh is the example of how this choosing works, that God did not choose the Pharaoh. He's the example of it. Now, patience... And choice was there, wasn't it? Pharaoh had a choice, and God gave him time. And Pharaoh made a decision. But ultimately, God made his, and, and, and God says that he's the one who hardened Pharaoh. And so in verses 19 through 21, the third element in this whole thing is that God does not apologize for making a sovereign choice. Notice in verse 19. Will you say then to me, why does he yet find fault for who has resisted his will? 
How can God blame me if he's the one that either chooses or doesn't choose? If I'm, if I'm a sinner and I reject him, then how can he find fault with me being that he's claiming sovereignty over that position of my own heart? He can't accuse me of being evil if he made me evil. God made me this way. And sometimes you'll hear people say that. Now, verse 20, Paul un- unties that argument. He says, nay, no. But, O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me thus? God is God, and you are not. <laughs> and so, <laughs> that's a great argument. Don't you wish you could just end all arguments that way? <laughs> you know, like, God, God tells us who he is. We don't tell him who he is, you know. And the whole thing, and he doesn't apologize for being God and for doing these things. Um, has not the power, verse 21, has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? God has the sovereign ability to do that, uh, and he doesn't apologize for it. You say, none of this makes any sense to me. Those arguments don't make sense to me. They don't, they don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not at ease with it all now. Go, no, thank you, Paul, for clearing that up for me. <laughs> you know, the whole thing. Where does this begin to make sense? Read on. Verse 22. Paul now raises another question. He goes, okay, what if God willing to show his wrath, meaning he wanted to reveal that he had wrath, that wrath was a part of his character, and to make his power known, he wanted to reveal the awesomeness of his glory, his splendor, and his power. That was his intent. That was his will. He wanted to reveal these parts of his character. And so what, how did he do it? He endured, that means he was patient, with much long-suffering, meaning that God was exceedingly patient, with, sorry, much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath that were fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared to glory. Now, here is where it's important that we understand, is that God says that, yes, ultimately, these were not chosen. Ultimately, these are lost. Pharaoh was lost. Others have been lost throughout human history. But in the process of that, God waited with much long-suffering. He was very patient, always willing, always would allow them to turn, always giving them the choice, even as he did to Pharaoh, and yet they didn't. But that in the process, the riches of his glory are known on the vessels of mercy, which he had before prepared to glory. And now here is where it applies to you and I. You say, man, I'm on this highway and I forgot why. <laughs> right? Verse 24. Even us. That's the linchpin in the whole chapter. Even us. Whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That God has shown mercy. Israel has been put on the back burner because they stumbled at the stumbling stone. But God has shown mercy to you and I. As, and now the scriptural proof of it, he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, that's us, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass 
in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, that there they shall be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant will be saved. Only a few will actually come to know the Lord. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. But as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have been like Sodom and made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, and we read these verses, which follow not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which follow not after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And of course, the stumbling stone that he describes then in verse 33. And so essentially what he's saying in this whole thing is that here's the answer to the question, what about the Jews? God's, God loved and still loves and will continue to love Israel as a nation. And God's not through with Israel as a nation. But because they rejected God's provision for their salvation, they have been placed to the side. And the church, the Gentiles, have been moved to the forefront for this season of time. God's not done with the Jews but right now he's working through the church, and this is why. Um, what is the stumbling stone? Look at chapter 10. Because he talks about this stumbling stone that the Jews tripped up over. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. We know that already. Paul said, I would trade my own salvation for it. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant, meaning they're not aware, they've ignored, they've rejected, being ignorant of God's righteousness, the righteousness that's been provided through Jesus Christ, and going about to establish their own righteousness... They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, trying to be righteous through behavior is to reject the provision of God's righteousness. You can't have both. It's tax season, right? And when we file our taxes, we have to make a decision. Am I going to itemize my deductions or am I going to take the standard deduction? And so we go and we add up our mortgage interest and you know all the expenses that we can deduct and our charitable gifts and all these things and we we come up with a number and then we look at the standard deduction that you can just take without having to list anything out and you figure well which one of these two is going to be a bigger deduction the standard deduction or all of my little itemized line items you know and then we obviously take the larger one because we don't want to pay taxes you know that's just human nature right it's not the way it works what Paul is saying here is that if you want to try to itemize your righteousness, you're going to list out all the good deeds that you've done, your good that outweighs your bad, the natural advantages that you have, and you want to just try to, you're going to bring that to God. Well, God, I walked 17 old ladies across the street per year, you know, and I gave and I went to church and I was faithful and I served, and you're going to just list out all the things that you did. 
and I didn't give myself to my passions too much. (laughs) And I held my temper. You know, we're going to list all those things, itemize all of our line items. Then over here, there's this standard righteousness. There's what Jesus Christ provided on the cross. He lived a perfect life, never sinned even once, never talked back, never lost his temper, never stole, never twisted, bent things for his own advantage. I mean, perfect life all the way through from start to finish. And that righteousness, God holds up and he says, listen, I want to give you this credit that he earned through his perfect life. So you get a choice while you're on earth. You can either itemize your, your, your righteousness and you can stand before me and hope that you'll be good enough based upon what you did or didn't do. Or you can take the standard righteousness that I've provided through my son Jesus. And you can lay yours aside and receive his. Which do you want? And we say, well, Lord, I kind of want both. I want his as an insurance, but I want my confidence to be in my own. When I look at other people, I want to carry my own because I want to be better than them. I want to compare and contrast and judge. But when I get to heaven, I, of course, you know, <laughs> I want the, you're going to shoo me in, right? I get the, no, 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 no. One or the other. I either lay down my itemized goodness or I receive what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. And the Jews stumbled because they said, hey, we've got a lot going for us. And we're pretty good people. And we're not like those goyim. (laughs) We'll take the itemized. And thus they didn't attain it. Because God's standard is perfection. And there's only been one perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. They didn't submit to the righteousness of God. And here's what it means, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In other words, it's no longer by the law that a person can be saved. But when a person comes to Jesus Christ, the law is now not part of the equation anymore. It's not about how good you are or how bad you were. It's about faith in what God did for you through his son Jesus. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. That the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Meaning he has to do it every day of his life. He has to live perfectly according to that law. But the righteousness which is of faith... The righteousness that comes from Christ speaks on this wise. Don't say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. In other words, you you work and climb so high that you can get yourself up into heaven. Who has ascended? Or you dig so deep into the things of God. So that you discover where he is and pull the treasure up for his... No, no, no. You can't climb high enough and you can't dig deep enough to reach God. But what saith it? Verse 8. The word is nigh thee. It's near you already. It's closer than that. Salvation isn't somewhere to be grasped if you can just climb high enough. 
Salvation is not somewhere to be found if you can just dig deep enough and learn enough, gain enough knowledge, read enough books, go to enough services. No, no, no. It's near you. Where? Where is it? Even, amazing, closer than you thought, in your mouth. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I've been looking in all the wrong places. <laughs> in your mouth and in your heart, what is it? It's the word of faith which we preach. So where is the salvation found? Where is righteousness found? Verse 9. That is that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now that is simple. The word confess in the Greek is homo legeo. Homo means the same and logo is word. It means same word. So to confess means to say the same word. What's the word? That Jesus is Lord. So to confess Jesus as Lord means that you're saying the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus. I'm bringing myself into alignment with who the Bible says Jesus is. Sometimes people say, would the real Jesus please stand up? And the real Jesus stands up right here in the word of God. A lot of things can claim to be Jesus, but God tells us who Jesus is, right? And when we say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus, we're confessing Jesus as Lord in a generic sense. We're saying, God, I agree. He was perfect. He was God. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He rose. He died and then rose three days later. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back again. I confess, Lord, all of that is true. I believe it. I've confessed Christ in a generic sense, but I'm also confessing him in a personal sense. He's not just the Lord. He's my Lord. Meaning, he didn't just become all those things and do all those things generically, but he did those things for me. And I receive his gift of salvation, his provided righteousness, and I lay down my own, and I receive him as my Lord. When I confess, homo legeo, say the same thing, I make him my Lord, and I believe it in my heart that God raised him from the dead then I'm saved. Do you understand the faith? You see the word believe there? I believe. I believe it. Now, the amazing thing is that faith is both a choice and a gift. Because I choose whether or not I'm going to believe something, right? You know, if I tell you that, you know, my car can do 240 miles an hour on a stretch of highway, my little Pontiac G6, you can choose to believe it or not. That's a choice that you make. Well, I believe it. You know, you, I don't know, you might have put an engine in it. I believe it, you know. So it's a choice, but it's also a gift because God says that even the faith that we have, he gave us. It says that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that even the faith that we have is a gift of God. It's not, not of, uh, from ourselves. So where does it come from? Oh, we're out of time. All right, we're going to stop because I I, I'm sure there's questions and, and we want to discuss um, what we're going to get into. Stupid clock. Fan, <laughs> not for you, for me. You <laughs> know, for you, it's like whatever. Um, what we're going to get into is why evangelize, right? 
Because that's where he goes from here. I mean, he's going to talk about evangelism right now. That's the very next thought is, is where does the evangelist and the, the, the plea, the preaching of the gospel, where does it come in? Like if God's just chosen, right? If God has just chosen, then why evangelize? People are going to get saved or they're not going to get saved. No, no, no. Evangelism has, has a purpose because what he's going to say is that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God and that they can't hear it without a preacher. And it's amazing. Read ahead because what it means is that you and I have a part to play in God's choice of people. Because he uses the word that we speak to reveal the faith that he has planted in someone else. And without our words that we speak, that faith might not come to the surface. So evangelism is important. Our sharing with people is important. Some, uh, someone went to, or Charles Spurgeon shared this, and, and he said that, um, he said, if I, if I came to you and you were fishing by the sea, and I came with my fishing pole, and I said to you, uh, how's the fishing? And you said, there ain't no fish in here. There's not one. He said, I probably wouldn't fish. He said, but if I came to you and I said, how's the fishing? And you said, I'm getting a few bites here and there, nothing major. He said, I might fish. He said, but if I came to you and I said, how's the fishing? And you said to me, there are 8,000 fish in this lake that are going to be caught. He said, I would fish. <laughs> and it's the same thing. We don't know who God's chosen. We don't know who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. And we know that not everyone is. But he's put it to us. Jesus said, behold, don't say four months and then the harvest. The fields are white. Go, reap, speak forth the word. See who believes. 